Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. I'm here with my fellow hosts, Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer. Special guest in the house. And my uh, my young. Lucy. <laughs> Lucy Lammer is here. Max, Max can you kindly say something, gave Lucy? Lucy some popcorn. She doesn't she doesn't she doesn't really talk on cue yet. <laughs> She's more of a behind the scenes producer type. Yeah. Uh, who's on the show this week? This week I talked to Christine Keneally, who has been working on, was working on a story for BuzzFeed. She was a sort of special correspondent for BuzzFeed for several years, working on one story called The Ghosts of the Orphanage, which came out last year. It was up for a bunch of awards this year. It's about uh, abuse in the orphanage system in the United States. It's an insane piece of investigative reporting. She's also written books. She's written about science. She's written for a whole bunch of publications. And she's based in Australia, which fascinated me. She was really great to talk to you. I think he's our first Australian guest. Yeah, yes. I uh, first Australian guest, although I know that we have many, many people listening in Australia. We hear from them constantly, and I've, I'm glad that we're finally giving them uh, uh, someone local. Yes, although about an American story, so don't speak too soon. You may, <laughs> you may yet hear from them. I mean, it, it doesn't count unless you wrote it in New York, but... I'm glad that we're talking about Australia. I also feel like uh, for you personally, this this might have been a trip down memory lane because I know that there's like an alternate uh, path for your life where you where you lived in Australia. I, tr- I tried to live in Australia, but I, I didn't get that internship at Rolling Stone Australia in 1998. So <laughs> You lose Rolling Stone Australia. <laughs> yeah, where are you now? <laughs> if you are living between continents and you want to keep in touch with everyone in your life, personally, professionally, what have you, no better way to do it than with an email newsletter. MailChimp makes it so easy. Sign up for one today. Thank you to MailChimp. Thank you to Lucy Lammer. Staying so quiet. Here's Evan with Christine Keneally. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much welcome for having me. Yes. <laughs> welcome, welcome back. Welcome back right? to New York. Yeah. You were... You were a somewhat long-time New York resident, or you were I a New was. York resident? I was. I lived here for a long time. I lived in Iowa before that. I lived in England before that, but Australia originally, and now I'm back there with my family, but coming back here on a fairly regular basis. That's not an easy trip to make on a fairly regular basis. You know, it depends what stage of the flight you ask me. Like, at certain points, I will say, no, no, it's totally fine. It's really easy. It's actually much easier than you think. And then, but if you catch me, like, halfway across the Pacific... It's a different story altogether. When you've been on a plane for yeah. you know, 15 hours or something. Yeah, I think landing in, the weather you land in really makes a difference too. So the the story that prompted me wanting to have you on the show right now, or actually not even right now, it was some months ago, but you were in Australia, um, was this BuzzFeed story about the orphanages. So I want to talk a lot about that. But Great. I also wanted to just talk about your background a little. And I, also, I, before that story, I sort of knew you more as a writer who focused on science, yeah. uh, wrote about science, wrote a couple of books about science. And so I wanted to kind of get up to the point of finding this new story. And we'll talk about that okay. a lot. Great. Um, but so what... What's your educational background in, mm-hmm. in Australia? I know you got a PhD. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I think my journalism story is an American one. So mm. so I did an undergrad degree in Australia and I I was really into linguistics and English. And then I went to England to do a PhD there. And that was also a linguistics. Um, by the time I had finished that, I was kind of done with that kind of intense focus and drilling down of academia and really wanting to make a break and had always wanted to write. Um, and I also met a boy in England who had come from Kansas originally. So we decided to come back here. And it was an amazing time to come here. I was based in Iowa for a couple of years, but it was the era of the dot-com boom or just before the dot-com boom. And I don't know mid, if that sort mid, of late precedes 90s. your writing. Yeah, but um, there were websites popping up all over the place. And not only were there many websites who were just really eager to hear from people just throwing pictures at them, you know, you could pitch by email. It wasn't actually that long before that that I believe people were pitching by fax and yes. letters and I, stuff fact, like that. I pitched some stories by fax oh myself. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> I've yeah. never done that. I ha I have heard tell of fax pitching. It seems so mad right it, now. The it? weirdest thing about when I did it was that there was email. For some reason, <laughs> I was told that I should pitch it by fax, but you never know even if anyone got it. Like, it could have right, just, like, right. slipped under the fax machine onto the <laughs> Straight floor. into the shredder, I think, is where those things went. <laughs> I think it might, mine did. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so I just decided I want to start pitching. So I started pitching places, and, you know, they were paying a dollar a word. These I are mean, online these magazines. These are online magazines that sort of started the day before, mm -hmm. basically, and there was all this money flying around. I can't even remember some of the places I wrote for, but I just wrote, you know, some pretty random pitching from Iowa and then I moved to New York and it was still this same feverish um, sort of money-filled uh, time. And I, I did some restaurant reviewing and I'd never done anything like that before. I mean, only in that era could someone have walked in off the street and pitched themselves as a restaurant <laughs> reviewer with absolutely no experience whatsoever. I did some movie reviewing. Like someone called me up because they'd heard of me because they were just desperate for a writer and I don't think I'd done anything like that. And I was movie reviewing for a while. Did you take to it? The restaurant reviewing was kind of fun, but I felt really inauthentic. And I certainly, I mean, I enjoy food, but I'm not one of those people who knows everything about food. And it bothered me too. Like, I think you have to be serious about it in a certain way. I don't know. It felt a little too... I'm not criticizing restaurant writers, but it felt unserious. It felt, it worried me because I would see people who were homeless on the streets as I was walking into the restaurant, you know, being paid a dollar a word to review food. Anyway, that was clearly not my thing. Um, the but the, the stories that you had been pitching, were they out of your linguistics background or were they before, but other than yeah. the sort of odd restaurant review and that sort of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. were you trying to utilize that expertise? Yes, absolutely. But I think initially just partly because Everyone seemed open to everything. I mean, I pitched a story, and I, I hesitate to say this because I really don't want anyone to go and look it up because it's probably, I know it's definitely complete rubbish. Because then I didn't know anything about American sport, but it was about American football. I knew nothing about American football. and But I was really fascinated by, um, see, I've forgotten the word for it. I wrote a whole article about it. You know, trash talking. So I guess that's kind of linguistic oh. right? Oh, that trash is, sure. talking. I was just, it was really fun to just kind of see all that. So I wrote about it. And I think subjects like that hadn't been written about before then too, right? Like when the dot-com boom started, when all those blogs started, there was this huge panorama of subjects that all of a sudden it was kind of okay to write about. So then how did you sort of make a jump from those scattering of web publications into a kind of uh, more sustainable career as those things sort of yeah. fell off or stopped paying or stopped paying as well as they did over the years? That's right. Well, I mean, and it was a really sort of distinct arc of uh, the availability of all these places and all these pieces and this actually reasonably good money and then the places started dying and and the, and the money started getting fewer and further between. And I think that was the point at which, I mean, I'd always wanted to write books and that seemed like such an amazing thing to do. I was a bit intimidated by the prospect, but it became clear to me that if I wanted to really stick with the writing, I was going to have to start on the books perhaps sooner rather than later because you can, it's a bit more steady, I think. If you um, get a reasonable book deal, you get to spend a good amount of time on a subject you really love and just constantly scrambling for freelance articles. Some people can do that successfully, but I don't know how. So yeah, that's when I wanted to start mixing in the books. So then you pitched your first book, which was about the yeah. origins of language. Yeah, language evolution. And did you feel when you were doing this stuff and sort of looking around, I mean, I can imagine, especially because I've done a fair amount of science journalism and there's a lot of, I'll include myself in this, uh, a lot of us who 
find an interesting subject, even for a feature story, spend a couple months digging into it, trying to understand the science, talking to a bunch of people, let me write this story about it. But you had a PhD in linguistics, like you had gone much deeper mm-hmm. than the average person who's writing about science. And did you sort of feel like I have an excess of knowledge that I can pour into this or like, look at all these amateurs. That's such a fantastic idea. God, I wish I'd felt like that, like ever in my life. Um, no, I That's didn't. That's how I imagine I would feel if I had a yeah. PhD. You know, maybe, maybe if I read articles written about language evolution by people who didn't have that background, mm-hmm. I might have felt a bit snooty about it and mm-hmm. a bit annoyed by things they got wrong. But, you know, in general, I feel like... Obviously, the book, the first book is completely shaped by my interest in linguistics and by the linguistic background, but it's hobbling as well because when you want to write for people, for just real people, for normal people, for non-academic people, it's a completely different kind of writing. And in academia, even just at the level of PhD, you are so concerned about being exhaustive in everything you do, stating every possibility so that you can rule them all out, addressing sort of the entirety of any one space that you're in. And that's kind of the opposite of a story, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's like a story cuts through all that stuff. Um, and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And I mean, my book was more explanatory than story, but even to incorporate narrative and narrative, small bits of narrative structure in that was really hard. And I think that was a moment too where like my sort of personal loyalty to academia was shifting, but I still felt, you know, I mean, when you speak to scientists, they're often so concerned completely reasonably for you to represent everything they're doing accurately, which is, of course, your job and you should. But sometimes their idea of what's accurate is that really exhaustive, encyclopedic kind of chunk of knowledge that you can't fit entirely into a story. So It's boring. It's, it's also boring. It's boring. It is completely boring. Eventually, I started saying that to some people, like in the interview, no, I can't do that. That's boring. People will stop reading. But yeah, you feel you don't want to betray these people who are really busy and take the time to talk to you and trust you to do something good with their, you know, with their life's work. And that was, if I'm recalling correctly, at the time... There was a lot of debate happening in that yeah. area about the origins of language and these people like Steven Pinker, like these kind of like big names battling it out over yeah. that. Did it feel like you were you were sort of like trying to wind your way through this battlefield? A little bit. Um, I mean, but it was. It was really controversial at the time. And that's what piqued my interest in the first place. And in fact, as an undergraduate, I'd been really interested and maybe I'd still be an academic today if someone had answered my question. But I asked a question about it and was told that like no one studied it because you can't study it. And that just seems like... The oranges of language. Yeah, that just seemed completely stupid to me at the time. And that kind of stuck with me. And then I circled back to it as a journalist. And primarily that resistance to the idea that language and evolution have much to do with each other in any sensible kind of way comes from Chomsky and Chomsky dominated the field for a really long time and scholars whose job it is to think widely and creatively refused to think about where language came from it sounds crazy Mm. right and so since that kind of that taboo came apart and you know that was happening as I wrote the book and I hope the book contributed to that as well um, this field has really flourished and there are just brilliant people doing amazing things with comparative biology looking at animal language with computer modeling and all you know they're getting at the question in all sorts of ways that there's so much to know now where before no one was even asking and did you go sort of book to book in terms of getting your neck? Like, I want to do a book, then I'm going to do the next book. Did you yeah. get the next one right after that? Or was there a period in between? I think, well, when some people go book to book, like they've got the next book deal before the first book comes out. Oh, and that impresses those people me really know what they're doing. immensely. <laughs> yeah, I really want to know what their secret is. So it felt like I did that, but I think it actually took about a year. And, you know, my books took a really long time to write, too. So while it may look like I took some time in there, I was actually working on it all the time. Why, in your reflecting back on it, why do they take a long time for you? I mean, books take a long time. I'm not mm. saying they should. you should be able to knock them out. I Personally, mine took a long time. But yeah. was it the trying to get as deep as possible in the reporting? Or yeah. was it sitting down to write it? Like, what felt like the thing that yeah. took the longest? I think, for me... 
the reporting was incredibly intensive. I went really deep and really wide and it was really important to me to do that. And, you know, maybe that was just a little bit too of the academic, you know, conditioning left over and perhaps I could have done a little bit less of that at the time. But I felt like I was putting that material together in a way no one had before. Mm -hmm. You know, the Language Evolution book was really the first popular book. So the incredible challenge of bringing together these ideas that some of these scholars hadn't even started talking to each other about and sort of offering that overview and then the challenge of writing about that material in a way that was actually interesting for people who weren't already scientists or scholars who just had that basic question, where did language come from? And your next book, the book about DNA and our, what's the title again? The Invisible History of the Human Race. Yes. Something, something subtitle. (laughs) (laughs) But it has this sort of personal angle in it as well about your own history, which I wanted to ask you about because there's some maybe very loosely threaded way in which I feel like it ties into the orphanage story just in terms of secrets and secret keeping. So maybe describe a little bit about the book and then what was your sort of part of it, Mm. your personal part of it. Yeah, so it came out in 2014. As with language evolution, people, you know, I feel like it was sort of at the beginning of the wave of material and articles and books about DNA and both how we use DNA to track the history of the human race, the migration of people 50,000 years ago, the sort of populations that merged together and then split apart and all this incredible complexity that was completely invisible to us. And then the way we use it to tap into our tiny, tiny sort of personal moment in that big story. Mm -hmm. And we can look at our own DNA and work out where we came from, both in terms of our immediate family and then our larger family history, which always involves these sort of interesting stories about where your ancestors are from a couple of generations ago, a couple hundred or more years ago, and thousands of years ago as well. And the, it really was different five years ago. I mean, now it's mm. like they're solving cold case crimes through databases That's right. and DNA. Like all this stuff is so, it's That's everywhere. Right. That's right. But that really was... Even then, it was a little more expensive to do, I feel like. Just a little. And people are a bit more wary, and not that people shouldn't be wary. I mean, in these days of data leaking, it's really important to just think seriously about what you're risking when when you take those tests. Can I just say, I feel like I coined the term DNA detective. I maybe didn't. I know. Yeah, but I feel like I got it out there first. And now it's like cold case DNA detective on channel whatever. Um, I'm trying to think yes. of a way you could have capitalized on that somehow. Yeah. Financially, T-shirts or yeah, something. Yeah, sold it, copyrighted it, something. Yeah. So, and what was the family discovery that you made? Mm. And why did you decide to include that in the book? It was one of those personal stories that I actually struggled with the entire time I was writing the book. I knew that was where it all began for me. That's why I was interested in the science and the history that I was interested in. I mean, I don't write memoiry stuff and I don't write about personal stuff a lot, so I'm not used to doing it. Some people are very, you know, really good at that. They're very entertaining and they're comfortable sort of being out there. But I wrestled with it and also because it involved my father and, you know, some really difficult feelings he had but so fundamentally it's a very ordinary story he didn't know who his father was and but we had grown up not knowing that Um, and only as adults did he finally tell us and um, there was just you know this incredible feeling I still really remember it clearly of like almost being able to hear a penny drop in the room you know it just instantly kind of reframed a lot of what I thought about my childhood and there had been such silence around his family in my childhood and I you know my siblings didn't experience it this way because they weren't curious I guess but I remember distinctly asking about family and being shushed or shut down I remember taking home that classic primary school I guess elementary school project a teacher had gotten us to do a family tree and mm-hmm. it took home a family tree to do. And I was actually super excited about it because I guess I am historically minded and it was just this huge drama in my house. And, you know, more than 10 years later, many, many years later, you know, in that room, hearing my dad say that and instantly going back in time and remembering all these moments. And so it wasn't just something that wasn't spoken about. It was an incredibly powerful secret. And then once it was revealed to you, how did it reorient your sort of family dynamics or did it? Well, it didn't. That was the really mm. irritating for me thing about it because 
because it felt like, well, now you should answer my questions. And my father didn't want to. And then I guess time passed and little pieces of what might be the puzzle came to me from extended members of the family. And that was really interesting. And then I started writing this book. And actually, I told my father that I wanted to find out who his father was. I, I understood that he didn't feel good about that. But you know, 25% of my DNA came from this person. I wanted to know who it was. And in a way, it was very generous of him. He kind of gave me his blessing, but he said he didn't want to know about it. He didn't want to know what I found. He's just not interested. Wow. Yeah. And you said you struggled with whether to write about it. Was that whether you wanted to reveal that much about yourself or that you would have to go to him and other members of your family and tell them yeah. I'm revealing our family secrets yeah. to the world. Yeah. No, it wasn't so much about me, but about my father and the fact that he was intensely private about it and and that he had spent so much of the energy of his life pushing it away and pushing it down and saying to all and sundry that it wasn't important and it would be really obvious that I thought it was important if I actually put it in a book. And yeah, I didn't know how that would impact him and... I think as so many of these things often are, it was okay in yeah. the end, you know? <laughs> it was really okay. And Wait, he did read it? He read some of it. And, <laughs> and my mom copy edited it. She was really awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah, she's actually really good. Ah. Um, very helpful. And, you know, we had a few conversations. And I believe that it loosened him up a bit, I think. He actually turned to me one day and... I kind of spoke about the whole thing more freely than he had before. And I felt like, thank God, you know, it had actually relieved some of the pressure inside him rather than increased it. And somewhere in this timeline that we've crossed two books now, you moved back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Why did you move back to Australia? Um, because I have two kids and it felt like, well, the original deal with the American boyfriend was that we would spend some time here and we would spend some time there and we would decide where we wanted to be long term, which was very sensible, I think. But it just didn't kind of work out like that. I mean, we stayed here. We had a great time. We absolutely loved it. We were very sad to leave, but it felt like I I wanted the kids to have an Australian education. I want them to go through the Australian school system. Um... Just sort of selfishly, culturally, not because it's a, you know, remarkably better than the American school system or anything like that. I just felt like it would be strange to sort of wake up 20 years later and have American children. <laughs> and as it is, they they remember, they love the States. They come back a lot. They've traveled with us a lot. And they definitely identify as both Australian and American they now, so, which I think is the best. Yeah. So it worked. Yeah. But you also, you were writing for... American publications. I mean, you're right. also writing for The New Yorker in there and, and other publications, New Scientist, Scientific American. And did moving, what did that do to your career at that point? Yeah, remarkably little. I mean, so that dot-com boom and that fax to email revolution had like completed its a few cycles by then. And, you know, I knew people here, so it was easy enough to reach out and pitch. And New Scientist, the people I worked with in New Scientist were in the UK anyway. So when I was writing for New Scientist, I was writing from here, oh, right, you know, primarily right. for UK editors. Yeah. And it was just pretty easy. And, you know, the desire was there, like, to stay connected to the States. So my husband works for an American company, so he travels a lot and he travels back here a lot. And I feel very connected to the media world here and to stories here and readers here and... So, but yes, a lot of travel and, you know, early morning phone calls and, you know, yeah. th- there are a few adjustments, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but the, I mean, I don't know why I expected it for you to tell me that it was much harder. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's so funny. Oh, that's um, and I know you did this long piece and a couple of follow-ups for The New Yorker about Australian wildfires a yeah, while back, which yeah. sort of interestingly like foreshadowed the more recent California wildfires. Yeah. Like, there's an explicit reference in there to California trying to fight fires the way... Australia fights fires. Is there some of that where if someone has a story in Australia, they come to you for it? No, I mean, I pitched that. Or you pitched that? I pitched that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, I woke up one morning, heard the fires were happening and got in touch with an editor and was sort of in the car driving out there that afternoon. And that just happened. And I haven't been sort of a newsbreaking reporter in my career. So that, you know, that was kind of fascinating to just be on something that fast too in my own hometown you know for the people that I already knew back here that was a really fascinating piece and you're right and it is relevant to now so I was thinking recently I've got to tell you um, one scene that never made it into the piece 
was a bunch of American firefighters had come to Australia to help out. And they had a conference that, you know, they booked a conference room near the airport. And there was sort of a group of the Australian firefighters and the American firefighters in a room together. And the Australians were trying to just give a kind of workshop about, you know, what you have to look out for when you go out into the bush. Mm-hmm. You know, because the the fires, I guess, are quite similar, but the terrain can be very different. The dangers are very different. Um I wanted to write a whole article about that. It was so fascinating. I mean, they were like kind of those amazing people who were both highly intelligent and incredibly physically skilled. You know, they looked all super, super fit. But there was this little kind of um, little face-off going on about who was the toughest. And, you know, so the Australians were explaining. And they had to explain, you know, like there are these insects called yellow jackets. And if they get you, like your stuff, like don't sort of whack the hive. Or I can't even remember exactly. Please, no one, like take advice from what I'm about to say. But, you know, and there are these I little... I think don't whack the hive. It's just don't whack the hive. That actually probably didn't need to be said, right? Um, but there are these like little pits in the ground where somehow the fire sinks down and it looks like it's flat ground. But if your foot sinks into one, like your foot's never coming out again. I mean, crazy, crazy things. So that was really interesting. But then the Americans couldn't resist like standing up and saying, well, if you come to California and, you know, this is what you have to watch out for. It was, even there was not, that's even not what was happening. It wasn't what was happening. But then look, <laughs> it was fair enough. They were just all proving that, you know, they knew what they were doing. They had a right to be there. It was fascinating. That's oh, that really a good cool. Scene. So how did you first get into this orphanage story because yeah. I mean not that you've written about a wide range of things so I don't want to say it's surprising that you would do it but it was a different kind of it's like a a deep historical investigation from something sort of recent past it feels like you must have come across it in some interesting way I did yeah and so glad I did too and it isn't the kind of story I'd focused on before but it mm-hmm. but like the fire piece and I did a uh, big hemispherectomy piece for the New Yorker. It was like yeah. the kind of piece I wanted to do more of. That but, was wild. Um, that story was wild. It was. That was really fascinating to do. Um, so, you know, with that background, but not having done loads of them, I had actually gone to a conference that was for and by archivists and record keepers who are just really interesting people and kind of know where shit is at, you know? Like mm-hmm. the record keepers know where things are and it seemed like a really great conference to go along to. Yeah, that's smart. So I was really keen to just go along. And and the way they have to think about the flow of information and how records affect truth and how the past shapes things. I mean, a lot of their themes are kind of the themes I'm interested in anyway. So, so I went to a session and it was about a group of people who had grown up in childcare institutions in the 20th century. And their challenge was that they had access to none of the sort of critical, vital information about their lives that we all take for granted. And it was at that conference because there was a group of uh, record keepers and archivists who were trying to help them. The government itself, so these people I think were from the government, the government itself was being really unhelpful towards these people, but the record keepers who worked for the government were talking about how they could most expediently get this information to these people who'd been looking for it for like 60 years. Kind of like birth certificates and like records of their medical records or things of their youth birth certificates and not just the records but the information in them so just like names of parents so any record that might contain the name of a parent or a sibling one of the strangest and most awful things about these institutions is often you might have five siblings in the institution very young and they wouldn't know they were siblings of each other God. Yeah, so they would find out that they'd actually been at this institution for 10 years with four siblings all along and no one had even told them or names of siblings out in the world who hadn't been in the institution. So stuff like that. Um, and this was these people from the government and record keepers, this was in the U.S.? The, no, this was in Australia. This was actually. in Australia. So okay. this was in Australia. So at first, so I, like everyone else before they've sort of learned about this stuff, had no idea orphanages were still a thing mm-hmm. in the 20th century. Just thought they'd all shut down. You know, I don't know. By the time of Shirley Temple, it was all over, right? Yeah. But they were still there. Like thousands and thousands of people had gone to them, were still suffering many decades later from having been in them. And, you know, at that time and that session, I understood that the abuse was a big part of the story. But the thing that really hooked me and disturbed me and I just couldn't forget about it was the depersonalization that went on in this place. So it wasn't just that these records had been lost along the way. It became really clear that the information was intentionally withheld. And 
it was all part of just this extraordinary depersonalization that happened to these kids in these places. So it wasn't just that they didn't know their birth date. The other most terrible example of that kind of depersonalization, which involved a sort of obliteration of personal information, and this was in Australia, but this is true of orphanages here and in the UK and many other places, a lot of children were referred to not by their name, but by a number. Mm-hmm. I actually interviewed a man not long after that session. I went and found some people who'd grown up in these places until he was 10 years old. He was called 29. I mean, this feels like the stuff of fiction for people, but it's true and it happened. And he's still out there. And one of these people is still out there and they haven't told anyone, but, you know, they were spoken to as numbers. They didn't know their own name. Sometimes nuns just renamed children. I don't know why. I don't know why. So at what point did you sort of find out that there was a kind of a story of a widespread abuse at this particular orphanage that you honed in on because you mm. I mean even within the story itself but at points you sort of jump to other ones and say yeah. there are parallel things happening in yeah. different places in the world in different places in the US yeah how did you find that one right so I well I wrote about the Australian orphanages and then started looking towards the states and then started at that time talking to BuzzFeed news BuzzFeed investigations about it and was assigned the story and in those first many months was actually traveling all over looking at different orphanages and partly it was because we wanted to find the right specific case study to find the story that was most tractable that we could you know find the most evidence for but also we wanted to make the case and be really really clear that this one case we were focusing on wasn't a house of horrors it wasn't a one-off it wasn't like this spooky place in vermont that was very very unique it was just one example and it was really important to just build sort of a robust case for the fact of this happening all over the country as well as a national story, not just a local story. And how did you find the court case? Was that something that was known to be out there already that was easily found or did, because it was settled? Yeah, it really wasn't easily found. And you know, when you look back on your reporting and you sort of think, oh, maybe I could have found it three months earlier than I did. Like (laughs) someone mentioned that actually three months ago, but it just kind of passed me by because I was focused on this other thing. So, but I'd heard about it a couple of times and then started building. And then I guess this, I spoke to someone who was an expert witness and she really underscored it for me. Actually, can I say that like a lot of the people I spoke to, lawyers, I reached out to lawyers who had been involved in sort of post-spotlight and spotlight sexual abuse litigation, activist groups, and even they didn't really, it was just crazy. No one, it was this sort of invisible spot, even in the minds of these people who had been right up against the coal face, at least on the sexual abuse front. But, you know, there were just just whispers for a long time. And then finally I spoke to this expert witness and she was really clear about what she thought happened there. And it became clear to me because she told me she'd been an expert witness in litigation that there was going to be a whole lot of documentation. So that's when we started driving really hard at Burlington, Vermont. And then the more documents we got, you know, the clearer it became that that was the place to really focus on. And how did you you do it in terms of travel and needing to go to... Burlington yeah. and living in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, yeah, no, fair question. <laughs> fair question. Um, so I'd continued doing what I'd been doing for much of the Invisible History book, which was so my kids were quite young at the time. My husband works for an American company. We like we would take vacation time and come here and I would work. Uh. And, you know, I think the kids thought they were on vacation. Um But my husband was working too at the same time. And, you know, we did it in different ways, but we would travel for like four weeks and six weeks. And there were a couple of eight-week trips where we were just going all over the country. I was trying to find people. So people who had been at Vermont had sort of spread and scattered over different states. Mm -hmm. And I was initially looking at orphanages in different states as well. So Um, then is that, are your family vacations sort of like, hey, we're going to (laughs) Omaha. Hey, we're going to... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, this is Montana today. Oh my goodness. It's really cold here, isn't it? Isn't it a funny place? to go on vacation. It just happens to be someone that I need to talk to here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. So huge, huge trips as a family, you know, and then trips by myself on top of that. And this, how long were you working on this story? Four years. That's, for a single story, that's a very long time. It was crazy. And so I was assigned a one-year contract. And at the end of each year, we just realized there was so much more there. 
And I don't know what conversations were happening at the other end at BuzzFeed. I'm just very grateful whatever they were, they happened and they kept extending. And then, you know, and then, of course, by the time we're in the fourth year, it was like, all right, all right, <laughs> this has got to happen now. Wow. Credit to them, though. That's Well, it was incredible. And it was a really interesting time to be there. You know, I think particular well no across the whole of BuzzFeed as far as I could tell and you know I'm no expert I'm just looking in from the outside I was just contracted I would visit the office but I was certainly not working in the office but you know it actually almost felt but in a less giddy way like that dot-com burst again right and there was this feeling of experimentation and possibility and like why not spend a really long time on one article so yeah absolutely props to them like this story would not be out there if it hadn't happened with BuzzFeed and that one of the parts of the story that's so fascinating, I mean, there's all these sort of themes woven into it, but one of them is, you know, about memory and how memory degrades and that one of the problems with the lawsuit, which was in the 1990s, where these former children at the orphanages, some of them had been gathered up by a lawyer to try to pursue litigation against, I guess, against the Catholic Church. Yeah. It had already been 50 years for many of them since the yeah. incidents had happened and then but now you're at least 15, 20 years yeah. after that. Did you have a feeling of like things slipping through your grasp or losing people to who were dying or, yeah. or becoming unavailable and you were trying to rush around and get them before they were gone? Yeah, yeah. So um, the feeling of things slipping through my grasp was so intense across the entirety of the four years. And um, there was one fellow who had witnessed the most remarkable story he spoke about going out looking for a boy who hadn't come in to dinner and going out with a group of boys to find him late at night on a cold winter's night in Burlington and coming across the body of the boy frozen tied to a tree and it was just absolutely horrible and there were things about his story and his character and the way he gave his deposition, like with so many of these people, it was just like, even on a reading, it was solid. There was something there, the texture of his description. It was just really, it was truthful. There was truth in what he was saying, but I wanted to find the whole story. And I looked and looked and looked and looked for him and finally found his daughter and he died nine days beforehand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that. It was really hard. Um, but you asked about memory as well. And mm -hmm. so the memory question is really interesting. Um, actually, it was so fascinating just as a kind of investigative task, as a reporter's task, like reading these depositions, which had come from the 1990s, and then often using them to try and track down the individuals who had given those depositions or family members. And meeting with them 20 years later and the most overwhelming experience I had with the people that I could find was the consistency of what they had said I mean it was just astonishing with consistently with their own account solid, from... their own account 20 years later from their account in the 1990s which was about an incident that had happened 20 years before that was rock solid and I, I mean I think there's something perhaps about the fact that it is so traumatic that kind of sealed it in amber a little bit you know that actually enabled them to repeat very clearly what had happened and, you know, details like the pillow was satin. It was some kind of satiny fabric or the smell was a particular kind of dusty, musty, yucky smell. And just stuff like that had stayed with them really, really clearly. So um, in detail, in the structure of the stories they were telling and also, and perhaps this is why it was so consistent or constant over time, they hadn't told a lot of people in the meantime. For a lot of them in the 1990s, it was the first time they'd told their story and one of the first times. It's incredibly traumatic to tell those stories again. There really is a reliving that goes along with it and there's so much fear and there's so much stigma, which is why they're silent in the first place. And a lot of people across the world who grew up in orphanages, you know, they haven't told their spouse of 50 years that they mm. were even in an orphanage, let alone something that had happened to them in that orphanage. That takes me back to wondering if in some way you had a kind of unique empathy with them because you had this story in your family. Like you understood yeah. that from your father never telling yeah. this family secret. It's a different kind of family secret, but... 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, weirdly enough with the language evolution book as well, like silence, forced silence really bugs the shit out of me. And, you know, whether it's with ideas or with experiences, that really draws me in. And then, and the injustice of forced silence as well. Maybe some forced silences are good. I don't know. But all the things that I end up writing about tend to have this component of that. Um, and did you, from a reporting perspective, how did you convince people? I mean, like you said, some of the people had been traumatized by telling their story that when they finally did get to tell it, and then they got essentially nothing for it. They got a settlement that was yeah. a paltry amount of money and very little else. Now you're returning to them and saying, tell it again to me. Yeah. How did you convince them? Very carefully and respectfully. And it was really important not to push you know, there are times, of course, when as a reporter, it's really appropriate to just push, push, push until something gives. But that certainly wasn't a strategy that made sense. Just, I guess, just to turn up and be sensitive and to offer to listen. And, you know, sometimes people would be very reluctant, but I would just sort of hang there and just keep chatting. And then they would start. And then, you know, it would just gush out of them, just these insane incredible stories and I think they experienced some kind of relief in the telling of it and then they would call me the next day and say I don't want to be part of this forget it you oh, know wow. you'll have to and that was disappointing but reasonable fair enough others didn't call me the next day you know they told this story but they hung in there and uh, you know there's so much fear still some of them are so scared for their names to be out there for the stories to be public not because I think some people imagine that they're worried just that people will know that something terrible happened to them. They are really terrified the church will come get them if they tell the truth about what happened. They're terrified. Come get them? I don't even know. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, these happen in small towns. I mean, Burlington's still a small town. I spent a lot of time looking at an orphanage in Albany in New York. Mm -hmm. People are just really scared to say it aloud the thing that sister so-and-so did to them and to name that person. And of course, I guess because the church also threatens people with defamation, uh, it undermines them during the litigation. I mean, it's not unreasonable either. Did you have trouble, I mean, given the time that it took to do the reporting, I can imagine you successfully convincing people that it's worthwhile to talk to you and then nothing happening for then years or yeah. a year or more after that and them saying why did I do this where is the story yeah well there were people who told me incredible stories who took me to places who showed me spots where they believed that the bodies literally were buried and they didn't end up in the story and some of them were very angry with me but you know I haven't stopped writing about it I'm gonna keep writing about it and I feel like there was a huge amount of local press that sort of sparked up all over mm. the place when the story came out. And, and I hope that that satisfied some of the need for their sort of personal recognition as well, or the attention paid to a specific orphanage rather than just this one or these few. There's a particular way you structured the story that interested me, which was, you know, you talk throughout there, are these little moments where you talk about even disbelieving them yourself, not disbelieving them, but saying some of these stories are so abuse of children in a way and and murder really like killing yeah, absolutely. children at orphanages that they just sound outlandish and you even had trouble believing all the details and that kind of pops up and the lawyer sort of feels that way too and they that undermines the lawsuit because the stories that are too out there a jury might not believe them and then you start to reveal towards the end there are these sections where it's sort of like and here's some reporting that started to connect the dots and then here's another set of yeah. it's there's like a false ending a couple of times where i think wow right. she nailed it and then there's another section that's actually <laughs> even more it has even more connections right and i'm curious about the decision to do it that way there's another way to do it where you're sort of like all the way at the top i came across this trove of documents and i talked to these people and mm. setting that all up as opposed mm. to creating the doubt almost mm. in everyone's mind mm. and mm. then coming back to mm. what you have. Mm. I mean, there's probably a bunch of reasons we sort of all converged on that structure, but a couple were certainly that that, I mean, that was the journey. That was the authentic journey. So you that know, really, it, that wasn't moving the well, chronological I, I, I pieces around. Well, I, I honestly can't remember exactly. I mean, there's <laughs> always a little bit of hand-waving, you know that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the, the journey of doubt was totally real. 
particularly, so Sally Dale is my main character and she's this really amazing woman. And it was really clear to me as soon as I started um, reading her depositions, I eventually got to watch her videos. You know, she was rock solid, but she had one story about this kid who was electrocuted that just sounded bonkers. And I didn't know what to do with it because it didn't, it just didn't mesh with all the other stuff I knew in the same way. So I put that aside for a year or two and it just haunted me. It really bothered me. I knew I was going to have to deal with it. I couldn't not deal with it if it was something that cast doubt on anything else she'd said, just in a general way, not a specific way. You know, I was going to have to balance it and be fair. And then just this one night came across the death certificate of this kid who had been electrocuted and you know it all came together and I knew it was real and it was this sort of falling kind of moment of just everything mashing so you know that was real and I really wanted people to experience that and because I know too that people don't believe Mm -hmm. you know you have to walk people through it in that way and you have to respect people's sense of how fantastic and unbelievable some of these stories are and that has to be built into the story I think to get people where you want to get them and then in addition to that you know it was really clear to us we talked a lot about just how grisly so many of the stories Mm -hmm. are they're very sad they're very hard to read and that's a really normal human reaction but we didn't want people to walk away we didn't want people to sort of come to a really tough spot and put it down and leave it so it had to be suspenseful it had to be a story where we were doling out certain pieces of information i thought a lot for a long time about the three act structure and how i could make it as three acty as possible you know so mm-hmm. there was a sense of momentum and a sense that if you keep going there's going to be more information and how did reading those accounts over that long a period of time in that depth, how did that affect you? It was really tough. It was really tough. I feel like I'm still grappling with that, actually. And I feel like there's a conversation I want to have about that that I don't even really know how to have yet. But with other journalists who do the same kind of thing, I mean, secondary trauma is real. I had some very black days in there. I had to think really hard about what I needed to do to just stay mentally healthy. And for me, staying physically healthy became this sort of bit of an obsession at the time. Mm. It really helped keep me grounded. You know, people talk about like putting it aside and walking away and not thinking about it. But I don't know about you with books, like no matter what the subject is, it's really hard to switch off from that stuff too. But Mm -hmm. it's funny how... There isn't a lot of overt conversation about those effects in journalism. Just, th- it yeah. must be partly that when you're reporting and writing about things that are so awful that happen to other people, it seems mm. uh, exactly. petty is the wrong word, but it can feel like you shouldn't be talking about yourself and exactly. what impact it has on you because that's really secondary, exactly. literally secondary, but it's yeah. also in importance to the people at the center of the story. Right. And there is literally no comparison. There is no comparison. And yet there is something uniquely terrible for journalists when they immerse in like literally hundreds of stories. Like no one else has that experience except maybe I guess in law enforcement, emergency workers. It is that kind of work when you just you're in this ocean of abuse. It's a thing. It's real. Did it change the way you view people? I mean, the question that I feel like reading the story, at first, I was reading it a little bit like a house of horror story, like the way you described Mm -hmm. it. Just sort of like, how did these nuns and these priests end up in this same place? Like, how did they get all of these sadistic people in the same place? And then you jump here and then you jump there and there's a case in Ireland. and, And then it starts to seem like, what's going on here? Like, what is the human motivation behind these acts? And the story doesn't really get into that. And I'm curious if you, if that changed your outlook on what people are capable of, I guess. Yeah, absolutely it did. And I can speak a little bit to your sense of how, how did all those people end up together? So I think there are lots of reasons. One really, um, one story that I heard often in all the different countries from all the different people, sometimes uh, a former resident of an orphanage would say, you know, there was this lady, she was really lovely, she was actually really nice. Or one guy told me this amazing story about a young nun punching an older nun, this incredible incident where she was defending a child. And the thing, the refrain that happened in every single one of those stories is they left. Mm. 
the good people are beaten out. So either they're fired, they're sent away, or they leave because they can't take it anymore. So there's this distillation of the kinds of people you have in those places. Um, These homes, there are state-run homes, not just uh, religious-run homes, and certainly not just Catholic-run homes, but I focused on the Catholic-run homes, so that's why I can talk about um, these orders of nuns. Many of them, the prime directive is obedience. Obedience in the face of perhaps things that might seem wrong to you. It's more important to be obedient than to question than to challenge. A lot of the women in this particular order had come from poor families themselves. Mm -hmm. So very similar backgrounds to the kids. Some of them entered the orders at 14, at 16, so they were much shaped by those organizations. And one thing we didn't get into a lot because we couldn't only do so much, but I'm really interested in, and all the sexual abuse litigation hasn't really plumbed, is there's clearly, clearly explicit networking between predators and perpetrators as well. I think for the litigation to be successful against parish priests, which is mostly what's happened so far, it's actually not necessary to establish a network, right? It's this huge part of what's clearly the story of this phenomenon that has bedeviled children for decades in this country and others. But it's not really spoken about or researched because you don't actually have to talk about it to get to where you need to get to in terms of litigation, to get the result. But yeah. Obviously, there is coordination, collaboration, and networking between individuals as well. And then, you know, there's those core groups of perpetrators, whether they're men or women, and then there's everyone around them protecting the church's reputation more than the health and safety of a child. So while you were working on it, I feel like the sort of like, wherever you want to peg the like beginning of the Me Too moment sort of happened, and there was a lot of also church abuse scandal stuff coming to light uh, during the process of you reporting it. And what do you think it is about this moment that's causing people to be able to break down the sort of like wall of silence in all of these different areas? It feels like at the same time. Yeah, that is such an interesting question. And I, I don't know because there was a moment in the 90s, right? So in Australia and here in the States in the 90s when this litigation occurred in the orphanage world, And it became suppressed again here in the States because people were funneled into this process of this sort of very combative litigation with the church, which really sought just to crush them and to just smash their stories and scatter them again. And it did that. It actually worked. It all went away again. And so I don't really know. I feel like a lot of those individuals who spoke in that litigation, they had reached a moment in their lives. Somehow they were distant enough and society had changed enough, like people had started to consider the possibility that maybe their stories were true, so it was possible to even speak them aloud. So there was some kind of weird, you know, social, personal moment of coincidence, and it all came out, but then it was all squashed down again. So I don't know, it was cycled back around somehow. It's like maybe 20 years on, it's like it's worth trying again for these folks maybe they're somewhat influenced by the Me Too movement. Obviously, Spotlight had a huge impact, and Mm -hmm. that's still rolling out to this day. Mm -hmm. But just two weeks, this is another iteration. This is another level of that. So two weeks before, I think it was two weeks, I don't know exactly, the article came out, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury released their report, and please don't quote me anyone on this because I'm not sure if I've got it right, but I know that this new process of engaging with the sex abuse in the diocese has involved going in and not asking for the documents, but taking them and not being willing to be handed altered documents or edited documents or just not give them the documents anymore. So I think there must be a sense of just complete fed upness and exasperation with the willingness of the other side to cooperate. Um, because and that, maybe that takes time too, right? Yeah. Just like because it's hard. I mean, in any country to go into a religious institution saying we're taking your documents, that's kind of serious. And you found documents from a separate case yeah. that then cast light on what had never never been given over yeah. in the litigation from the 90s. That's right. It actually contained some of the story, validation of stories that had happened in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, which was just incredible. But then also um, just dreadful behind the scenes reality of what was happening in the 1990s litigation, which is that a lot of the priests who are on the stand defending the nuns, being outraged at the suggestion of any kind of abuse, just generally 
putting on this amazing act, you know, one in particular, and there's more than one, had been sent to rehab for pedophilic tendencies like just the year before. And you do have, people should read the story because we're, we've already, we're well down the spoiler uh, hole for, for this story. I mean, that seems a little trivial with a story like this, but it is suspenseful and there are revelations in it. But, you know, you're able to find one of the nuns and you're able to confront one of the nuns at one point, former nun from that particular orphanage. Yeah. And just wanted to know a little bit about what it was like to gear up for that interview. Like that felt like the story could have gone without it, but it gave the story this feeling in what she says, it just rounds out the credibility mm. in this like yeah. almost like subtle way. But also she seemed like an older woman who was just trying to live out the rest of her life. Yeah. And you're bringing these allegations essentially like to her doorstep. Yes. And what was that like? It was really hard. I mean, first of all, it was hard because I came to her after literally years of trying to find these women and trying to get these women to talk to me. I mean, no one talks. No one talks. It's even women who've left these orders are often still closely connected to the Catholic Church. They have skin in the game. They don't want to come out. They don't want to be whistleblowers. They don't want to talk about nasty things that happened 30 years before. Absolutely no one will talk. I knocked on so many doors. I called so many numbers. So just to even get a human being was incredible for me mm -hmm. and just, you know, really shocking in the moment because she like opened her door and she was <laughs> this really sweet old lady and she invited me in. And, you know, it, I was so glad to have found her because she was so sort of resolutely happy inside her own life and content with the rationalizations that she and her sisters had come up with all those years before. I don't think I could have imagined her if I hadn't met her. You know, that sense of contrast of like, but you did this stuff, right? And her just also being a really nice little old lady who had great stories to tell about dancing and, um, you know, and the times when she'd been a little bit rebellious when she was a nun and done naughty things like slide down the banister and stuff like that. I mean, you can't prepare for that stuff, right? Like, you just try and try and try, and then you get there. It's like, oh shit! <laughs> Especially she after she just invited me in. Being had closed doors so many times, it's almost yeah. a shock when one opens, and then you just have to go. It truly is, yeah. And what are the? Are there any sort of consequences ensuing for? This? I mean, I know you're going to write a book about it, yeah. So we'll talk about that in one second, but. Are there public or legal ramifications yeah. that are coming about because of the story? Yeah, yeah. Look, it was incredible. About two weeks after the piece dropped, the Vermont Attorney General, the state police, the Burlington police chief, the mayor got together and announced a task force to investigate the allegations of all the different kinds of abuse, including the allegations of murder at the orphanage. And that is undergoing right now. Well, that seems like, I mean, that's, we'll give the book another layer. Yeah, I need to get back up to Burlington pretty <laughs> soon, actually, to actually find out what's happening. But I'm really excited. I mean, as you know, right, there are so many documents you can't get hold of as a reporter, and you know they're there. You know they're there. They're in someone's garage, or they're locked away in someone's cupboard, and you don't have the power of subpoena. You can't access things through discovery, only after the fact. And the people who are conducting this investigation can do that. So I'm really hopeful that something will come from but this. But then how frustrating will it be if they then won't share them with you? If you well, say, because like, they never do either. Yeah, they don't, they're still, even <laughs> though great. it was based on your story, they're still going to no, say, well, we're right. not allowed to share these with you. I know. And that's their job. And I have to respect that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't think they want it to be a super long process. So hopefully there will be some kind of public reckoning within the time frame that I'm writing the book. That would be really nice if that happened for me. But even that process, like I think they're also, they're, when they first made the announcement, it wasn't just about, you know, with a view to a criminal investigation. They were also talking about things like truth and reconciliation. So even if they, as a task force, and I'm not certainly speaking for them, this was just the impression I got from what they said, it seems like the idea is not just to investigate, but to provide resolution, whether they come up with stuff or not to engage with just the wounds and the injustice that has been unrecognized for so long. So more, I guess, of a humanitarian approach, which is, again, I have no idea how that's going to play out, but I'm really interested to see what they can offer people who've been offered nothing all this time. And 
what kind of sort of deep breath do you have to take before diving back into it? I mean, I imagine it was a huge relief to get the story out after that much reporting and having that much material and the darkness of it. And then now you're going back in. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really important in the interim, like before now, like just to do a few short pieces and to remember what it's like to close a piece because <laughs> it just took so long to close that one. I didn't do much other journalism, actually hardly any, I think for that four years, it was just fully focused. So I just wanted to experience writing shorter pieces and remind myself what that is like. And that was really good. And, you know, I mean, I think I felt a little reluctant just because it's still such a huge story and I still feel so daunted about my ability to do it justice you know it's so important to get it right and it's really hard to get it right and so that's still daunting um but yeah you know i just actually started this might sound really weird i started flicking through some death certificates last night which is something i spent a lot of time doing four years ago and i just found myself drawn in i think when you just go back to the materials the materials draw you in well it's an incredible story. It's incredible the way you unearthed it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Christine Keneally for coming into the studio all the way from Australia. Also, thanks to Mark Schufs, who originally hooked us up for that interview. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Piper, to our intern, Louisa Garbowit, and to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. As always, we thank our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week. <laughs>